Welcome to the dumbest guy in the room. I'm John Dick, founder and CEO of Civic Science, and the only male in a family of four, which means I'm pretty much always the dumbest guy in the room. Thank you for lending us your ears and your brain for another episode of our podcast. With everything that's changed in our lives over the past year, nothing has been disrupted more dramatically or permanently than the way we work it will never go back to the way it was. Before COVID, concepts like flex time and telecommuting were matters of taste, hallmarks of progressive company culture. But in a minute last March, they became necessity. And as everyone white knuckled their way through setting up home offices and Zoom backgrounds, a funny thing happened. We learned definitively that most people are happier working from home. Over 40% of US adults now say they'd be willing to work for less money if they could work anywhere they want. We also learned that companies could be equally, if not more productive, operating virtually while attracting a broader pool of talent and saving a bunch of money along the way. On top of COVID, the racial injustice crisis put an entirely new emphasis on corporate responsibility and values. 71% of U.S. consumers now say that a company's social agenda is important to their decision to shop there. Meanwhile, workers, particularly younger workers, want employers who meaningfully support the causes they care about. These trends put an incredible amount of pressure on business leaders. Just nailing quarterly earnings isn't enough anymore. People want purpose, and they won't relocate to your city if it sucks, because they don't have to. Today, I'll introduce you to Bracken Darrell, the CEO of Logitech, one of the fastest growing tech companies in the world. As a manufacturer of devices for connected offices, video games, and home entertainment, Logitech sits at the epicenter of the biggest trends of the COVID era. We're going to talk about the evolution of work during the pandemic and why these changes are here to stay. Bracken's also a student of leadership and a quirky one at that. He once fired himself just to see what would happen. We'll explore strategies for leading a company that has literally doubled every two and a half years since he took over. So pour yourself a coffee or a glass of wine for a friendly but philosophical conversation with Bracken Darrell and me, the dumbest guy in the room. Bracken Darrell, great to see you. Great to see you, John. We actually do see each other, even though your audience doesn't see us. We are socially distanced from one end of the country to the other. Where, where, where exactly are you right now? I'm in uh, Northern California, south of San Francisco. Awesome. Good for you. Good for you. Well, well, look, I um, we're going to d- dive right into it because I'm super excited about this conversation. It's hard for me to think of a company, any company, that has lived at the confluence of more COVID-related trends that we've seen over the last year than you from work from home to gaming to music. And I want to talk about each of them individually, but I want you to go, look, your, your, your stock price is up 300% from where it was a year ago. Congratulations on that. But let's rewind a bit and take us back to like January, February of last year. Last time I saw you was a year ago, January, I think it's CES. Yeah. Yeah. Um, talk to me a bit about when, when you knew that this coming era, I guess at this point we can call it, when you, when you, when you knew it was going to change things for your business, when you, when you knew it was going to create this kind of demand, like talk a little bit about the psychology of that from, from when we all sort of had no idea how long this pandemic was going to be or how big it was going to be and then to where we are now. Uh, what was that time like for you guys? Well, I'll give you a surprising answer. Actually, it was about between seven and nine years ago. 
because of course we didn't see this pandemic coming, but we we were we had this view of how to we were a repositioning company when I first arrived. And when I arrived, it was worth a billion dollars today. It's worth eighteen billion dollars. The, the reason we've been that's happened is every two and a half years we've doubled in value, and and the reason that's happened is because we position ourselves behind secular long you know these secular trends that are not going to they didn't start at the pandemic and they're not going to end after it's over and so there were four of them the first one was that all calls would go to video calls and so that's on its way the second one was that uh esports would become the biggest collection of sports in the world for, for participants and for spectators bigger than you know soccer bigger than american football bigger than nba basketball the third one was that people would work from this is they're all kind of obvious now but they weren't eight or nine years ago uh, the third one is that that uh, people would would work in an office, but they'd work from a whole bunch of other places too. And the last one uh, is just phenomenal: is that people would watch more content from each other or from other people than they would from big companies like Netflix or Amazon. All four of those are secular trends we've been on for a long time. That's why our stock has doubled every two and a half years, almost like clockwork. And then when we hit the pandemic, all four of them accelerated. And I would say I really felt that uh, in the very early days of the pandemic. In late March, our business went through the floor, like everybody else's when retail disappeared. And then by, I would say, you know, the middle of the next quarter, it started to look pretty positive. And, and our, our products were playing a big role in people connecting to people during the pandemic and working, you know, and then escaping and playing and, and streaming and trying to create something. So I would say it was during that, that second quarter of the year, of most people's year, first quarter of our fiscal year. Were you optimistic before that? I mean, even before you start seeing the numbers, can you look ahead and say, look, you tell your team, hey, look, folks, this is actually going to turn in our favor at some point. I mean, did you feel that optimism? But the, I, I reflect on our own business. We also had a pretty successful year, but I remember in March not knowing what the hell the future was going to look like. I, I'm, it was probably well into April till I felt like we were going to turn the corner on it ourselves. I, you know, I would, I'm so long-term oriented that I, I'm, I've been super optimistic about our business from almost the first month at Logitech and every successive, you know, kind of year I've gotten more optimistic. And so I was very optimistic coming into calendar 2020 and nothing dimmed my long-term enthusiasm when the, when COVID started, I just thought, okay, well, this will be a, a kind of an ugly bump in the road. We'll get through it and then we'll continue where we left off. I didn't think it would accelerate our business as much as it did. Yeah. Well, so, so you're such a, you're a design first company. If, I don't know if those are the exact terms you use, but the way I look at, at the way you've led the business, you know, but design so much about the user, the customer using your product, watching how they use your product. First question is, have you learned anything surprising from, so you've had this kind of nonlinear increase in demand for your products over the last year maybe bringing new people into categories that weren't in the category a year or two ago. Have you learned anything different about the consumer in this last year of how they're using your product, what appeals to the consumer? Are you seeing a new type of consumer come into some of these categories? Anything that's maybe surprised you pleasantly over the last year? I don't know if it surprised me necessarily, but it, it highlighted things that sort of I had underneath me in my back of my mind. And, and I'd say back of our minds of the company. One of them is, uh, is sort of obvious. You know, I'm sort of your typical guy. And I think most uh, most consumers are like that. You know, you kind of, before the pandemic, I would look in the mirror, you know, five times a day. I literally, I don't, this is really embarrassing to say, but I have not 
like put a brush or a comb in my hair in like 10 years because I just run the hand through my hair and luckily I've got really thick hair so it just stays there. So that's that's kind of the way I thought about uh, appearance, you know, and I would look in the mirror, you know, like I said, in the morning and, and then when I brush my teeth and that that's about it. And then when we went to looking ourselves in the mirror, five, instead of five times a day, five times a minute, you know, because when you're on Zoom and all this stuff, it's just you can't get away from yourself no matter how hard you hide it. You know, I I did not uh, I underestimated the morale impact of that. <laughs> you actually care what you look like, so I think that that is a factor now, and I think people do want to. You know, and and you know, there are lots of solutions coming. I mean, our our cameras are really good. They they do a good job helping people look their best. But so, you know, Zoom's got a way to soften that, and everybody does. But that's sort of that that superficial reality that we are human beings that actually do care what we look like and don't want to feel bad about ourselves all day is one one really superficial thing that surprised me. The biggest surprise of all though, and it's been a wonderful surprise in a way, is that we're it you know, what I thought what I felt so purposeful about our company uh, in so many ways has become so much more meaningful. In so much so much more meaningful. You know, it's just come in waves. You know, the first wave was, you know, in the middle of COVID, you know, you'd have a person in a hospital room who couldn't communicate with their family on the outside or, or, or thousands of miles away because they couldn't come. And having our cameras be the connective tissue was, was so meaningful for people in the company, you know, and then, and then add education to that. And it's just, it's just been so incredible, John. And this, this second, so it really gave a sense of purpose of the company. And then, and then when George Floyd came, you know, and I'll, I'll stop this here because I'm sure we'll get more deeply into it now. You know, I felt a whole new wave of purpose come into the company. And then in the middle of all this, somewhere, it dawned on me and a lot of other people that, oh, my gosh, this is actually pretty good for the environment. You know, I'm seeing wildlife in my backyard that I didn't even know lived in this area. And, and, it, and it really hit me, you know, the environment thing. You know, we can move faster here. It's, it's a real opportunity. So I would say the surprises keep coming, you know, and they – but they're not surprises. They're, they're predictable, but they're, they're, they are surprises. Well, things are accelerating, too. And we're, we're going we're gonna to see a, um, a surge in this. And I don't mean a case surge. I guess maybe we're seeing one of those now. But I think we're going to see a surge in consumerism in the second half of the year as we get back to experiences and things. But I, I want to talk about the, the future of work a bit. Yeah. You, have a, you have a ground zero view of it where you sit. I think we both have a view of it as leaders of businesses, but this move toward remote, you mentioned sort of people will work from offices, but also work from lots of other places, right? And we just, we've, we've seen a massive accelerant of that. I don't think we go back to what it looked like before. I don't think people want us to. I think the majority, according to our data, 40% of Americans say they would actually be willing to possibly work for less money if they could work from anywhere they want. 30% say they would pick up and move to a different city or state if they could work from anywhere that they wanted. That jumps up to almost 40% among people under the age of 29. So this idea of remote or disparate working is here to stay. You saw that, what, seven, nine years ago as a future. Um, what do you think the next year, two years looks like? How, how fast does that trend accelerate? Are companies, are companies prepared to support that fast of a change? Yeah, I mean, I think you know the cool thing about what's there. There are a lot of horrible things about this pandemic, and there are a few cool things. This is one of the cool things. Every company got, you know, I, I keep using this analogy of viruses and vaccinations. So I'm going to apologize to anybody who's you know who, who finds that offensive, but it really works well. 
you know, I'd say there was there's no way to virally getting to the point where the where the vast majority of companies would think working from home was okay would have taken a century, you know, because of old timers like me, you know, who would have said, oh, that's really hard. You know, how do we sustain a culture, blah, blah, blah. So that as the viral spread ain't going to happen in our lifetimes. But we got vaccinated with that. We were forced into it. It was one moment, one weekend, everybody went. And now there's not a leader on the planet who doesn't think, okay, it's doable. Then there's another big group that says it's preferable. And there's another big group that says, I, I think we can we can do this in a very broad way, doing a little bit of working in the office and a little bit of working at home and a little bit of flexibility on where people live. So I think the few, the next year or two is going to be it's going to be moderating from where we are now to where, of course, you're you're working sometimes in the, in the office. And it's probably more meeting space than working space, but both. And then a lot of the time in your home and maybe in your second place you want to go sometimes. So I think that you're going to see a super flexible world coming out of this, which is exciting. Do you think, so the stat, I'll, I'll reiterate that up to 30% of people said they would pick up and leave, move to a different city or a state if their job allowed them to work anywhere that they want. Does that, does that change dynamics? And do you even see any of it now? Does that change any dynamics in terms of rural versus urban living? Like how does, how do you think that deck gets shuffled? Uh, if people can say, look, I'm not, tethered to a physical location to go to work any longer what does that do to what does that potentially do to pattern talent migration patterns and do you see any of that yet in terms of urban versus rural or people moving i i well you know i see it now it's happening i feel so smart you know because not because i am because i was lucky i was in my hometown of Owensboro, kentucky about three years ago 50 53,000 people as long as i can remember Owensboro is always trying to court the Toyota plant or the Corvette plant or the ragu spaghetti <laughs> sauce. Plant. Right. You know, it was always how do we get the the manufacturing location or the or the, the small headquarters or something. And I went down there and I gave a talk on something to their leadership Owensboro group. And then at the end, one of the city administrators said, "Hey, what what, what would you what advice would you give a, a city like us?" And I said, and I didn't expect the question. I thought I thought you know. What the hell could, advice could I give them? And I thought, well, you know what? Because of the technology that's available now, you can be working at Google out of Owensboro, Kentucky. And that's a pretty good life. And you can work at Facebook out of Owensboro, Kentucky. And you can work at Logitech out of Owensboro, Kentucky. So if I were you, I would, be, I would enable with super high Wi-Fi capability throughout the town. I'd have little places where people could go that are cool places to be. Maybe we work light, you know, where you could community places where you can go get away from your house sometimes but i would i would make i would become the small town that thinks it's a big city but it actually is a small town it's just connected to big cities so i think that's happening you know and i and i and now i think you're going to see it's not going to happen overnight but it's going to be a migration and i think it's super exciting for all those small towns out there that were worried about you know the the, the mass move to bigger urban areas you know yeah there will still be moved to urban areas but there's gonna be a lot of staying power and attractiveness in small towns it could go a, a lot of different ways right if you're if you're in a place like bentonville or you're in a place like you know cincinnati with procter and gamble you may those towns do live and exist because of a big company that came there does that does that erode a little bit if you say well i can work for walmart but i don't have to live in bentonville anymore nothing against bentonville but just you may choose you may you may rather live in chicago or or new york or austin or what have you i think yeah there's going to be a fascinating 
level of uh, shuffling. I agree with that. Yep. Let's talk about gaming. Um, it's the another just massive trend, right? The percentage of Americans who say they play video games daily is up 20% from the beginning of the pandemic. You saw you saw that trend obviously long before the pandemic. I expected it to slow when people were allowed to get outside because we've seen this convergence of you know outdoor activities and things, but gaming hasn't seemed to slow at all. Where does ga- where does gaming go coming out of the pandemic? Gaming is uh, is uh, I call four of these trends. Gaming is a long term, very strong secular trend. It's not going to go anywhere but up if it. If it wobbles around and flat for for a year because of the incredible base period, I think it's possible. But I really think the the gaming industry is just a great long term industry to be in, you know. Because the the truth is, if you look under the age of twenty five, I'm sure your research shows it. The vast majority of people are playing games, you know. And if you and those people will grow up and they'll keep playing games. So it's a it's I don't see how post pandemic we have some big drop or something. I think it's just going to keep going up. One trend that in gaming that's always sort of perplexed me a bit because it doesn't follow the same trend lines as the other, but AR and VR haven't seemed to stick yet. I thought we might see a rena- or not a renaissance, but sort of a step change in in things like augmented and virtual reality during the pandemic with everyone stuck at home. Maybe you see things in the industry that I don't because um, I'm looking at sort of self-reported usage statistics, but. Why haven't those trends accelerated to the same rate some of the other gaming trends have accelerated? First, I think they are accelerating. You know, they're just off of such a low base that you don't see much. You know, okay. Oculus couldn't, couldn't make enough. I mean, I don't know how many they sold in, in the two months that their newest product was available, but they just couldn't make enough. I mean, and, uh, and that's, that's not all gaming, but it's mostly gaming. I think that trend is on its way up. Now, I don't, I'm not as big a believer in VR as a kind of a cultural phenomenon as, of course, everybody is in AR. So I think that's, we're not there yet with AR yet. The glasses aren't available yet that make it really super convenient and simple. And, you know, there's, there's, there's technology we've out there. Maybe it's three to five years before we start to see that in any meaningful way. But uh, we've been investing in this space for many years. We're not going to let up because, for sure, AR is just going to be transformative. It's just going to take time. You know, you got to have a long-term view. And the VR stuff is really cool, but, you know, you have to separate even more than you do now from from your surroundings, which is some getting used to. So I don't think those kinds of trends don't happen overnight. But more and more people will play VR over the next couple of years. I think it's going to keep growing off of that small base. Okay. I'm allowed, as you know, to make fun of people for their names because I'm sort of tortured by it. Bracken Daryl. So some people have two first names you've got a first name as a last name and a last name as a first name tell us the bracken daryl what's the origin story what's that name you're from kentucky originally family name G- give me give me a bit give me a, that background and i want to i want to talk a bit about the, the the winding story that got you to where you are running this incredibly successful company right now i, I wish i had a more romantic story about my name it's just my i was born in new jersey i grew up in kentucky i lived in new jersey for three years my parents knew some little boy named Bracken, apparently, and they named me. I gave him the same name. It's I've never met another one, and yeah. I also, as you know, you know, as you as you pointed out, I think ninety percent of the time people get my name backwards to the point where I don't even notice it much anymore. I just don't even acknowledge. I never acknowledge it, and I use my Starbucks name Paul whenever I order anything from. <laughs> where I don't want to take the time to explain that no, my first name is Bracken. So, uh, 
anyway, yeah, it's, it, there's nothing fancy about my name except that it, it does mean a large firm, Brack, large firm. Awesome. So you uh, grew up in Kentucky, play basketball, because everybody in Kentucky plays basketball, right? Big time. I still play. Good for you. I'm playing two-on-two in the pandemic now. Awesome. Went to college in Kentucky? Went to college in Arkansas. Oh, in Arkansas. Conway, Arkansas. Conway Twitty's namesake. Oh. What did you study there? Liberal arts, right? Studied English literature. Perfect major for tech. (laughs) Yeah. Do you use any of it? Every day, I would yeah. say. It was, uh, it was really good for me. Yeah, I was liberal arts and a philosophy major, so I can't, I'm not, there's not a whole lot I draw from in my, da- in my day-to-day. Um, I run a podcast, and we're not inventing Tesla. Right. When did you know you wanted to get into business? I mean, off of a, off of a background like English Lit. I always knew I wanted to be in business. Oh, not always, but by the time I was about 17 or 18, because I, I felt I got addicted to leadership, and I... Once uh, you get that addiction, you're either going to go into politics, leadership, or the military. And, and uh, I pretty soon after that figured out that the business seemed like the place to go so, for me. So anyway, so I, I knew when I was in college that I wanted to do that. And uh, and so I, I majored in English because I was always better at math. So I picked enough accounting and economics to get a job right out of school. And, uh, and actually, I became the only English major who, who, was, uh, who worked as a CPA in my first couple of years out of school. But I, but I took English because I wanted to be able to write and speak better. It didn't work very well, but I, it's, I'm still working on that. You're doing fine for yourself. You came up through your career in probably, I would say, would you characterize it more as CPG? Um, you spent your time at Procter & Gamble. Like what, what did you draw from in those different stages of, or different types of brands that you worked in that, you, that really sort of converged for you in this one, in this job you have now? You know, I would say my, yeah, my, after the, the four year kind of before I into the accounting field, I went back to school, business school. When I came out, I, I went to P&G. I'd say P&G, I really learned uh, the, the, the basics of how to run a business. And I also got very deeply involved in the product. So I, I, I fell in love with creating products. You know, I just thought that was the coolest thing in the world. I felt, ironically, over the following years, I fell out of love with marketing, which a lot of people think of as uh, P&G's sweet spot because I, I worked in the beauty business off and on over the next, you know, five years. And I just felt like beauty was too much about amplifying and kind of exaggerating differences that don't really make a difference for people. And, I, and it just made me feel sick. You know, and I just hated it. So I felt, I felt deeply in love with design because that was where product meets user experience that matters. And so that's why I got so addicted to design. And, uh, and I actually didn't come back into feeling anything but disgust with marketing as a concept until a few years ago and um and it was really when i figured out that that you, know, you could be about values and and now this has become trite but values and purpose in your marketing and then and then it was totally honest and then it was actually really powerful and so i i thought god this is awesome i mean this is what marketing should be so i'm now I'm back in love with marketing i'm not pretending we're the best at it but i really love it it strikes me though that we live it. There's a lot of tension between. And I agree with you 100. percent But there, there's this, there's this groundswell of interest in purpose-based marketing. Well, not even marketing. The consumer doesn't think about it that way. The consumer is make, making purpose-based purchasing yeah. decisions, right? And so we've got that trend, and it's definitely growing, and that's wonderful. And I see it in my kids every day in terms of you know, I mean, it's the, the pejorative is cancel culture, but there's some, there's a grayer area where you support brands that. And people who support your 
values and not the other way around. But you still have the Instagrams and the, you know, you mentioned even just looking at ourselves on screen all day. There's still that sort of superficial pressure that you get um, from having your picture on everybody's screen a thousand times a day, not just in Zoom, but, you know, your pictures on, on Instagram. And do you feel like that that sort of aspirational sort of superficial trend is going to wane as we become more purple. They seem to be like, I, I don't know, like at a 50, 50 split right now, but I do feel, I feel like it's more positive than it was just a few years ago. Are you seeing maybe some of that superficialness and the consumer decline? Well, I don't know. You know, I don't know whether the superficiality of, of, of caring about what you look like or caring about what people say about you, I don't know if that will decline very much. I think the important, the more, the more exciting thing to me is just how strongly the rise in, uh, in people feeling that values matter is. You know, I was, I was responding to somebody today who wrote me a note about an article, I think it was in the New York Times Wall Street Journal yesterday about, about, it was an, an edit, an op-ed piece on, you know, that the CEO should start to think more about stakeholder, you know, all the stakeholders, not just the investors. And then they were talking about, you know, this, um, this, I can't remember the group that, that, that came out and said, you know, we're going to stop thinking about just profit and shareholder returns. We're going to start thinking about, you know, the communities we live in, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought, you know, this all feels a little step behind. Like to me, the whole discussion feels a step behind where the reality is now. I, I think if you're a CEO or your company in general, you're not going to have a choice to be, but be about values. You're going to get left out of the equation. In fact, you're going to, you, if you're, if you're really late, you're going to get, you're going to be dead. So your company's going to be dead. If you're kind of late, you're going to have to, you're going to be in catch up mode. If you're ahead, you're probably going to separate yourself. And you know, the irony of all that is it can't be a tactic because by definition, everything's too transparent. Social media is too strong. It has to be real with real outcomes and real action. So there's no, this isn't going to be, I think this is one of the most transformative times in business ever existed where we're seeing a massive move where employees and customers are going to become activists. And if you're not doing the right things and doing what you say you're doing, you're going to get called out, uh, in some cases canceled, and certainly uh, slowed down by the fact that you aren't living what you said you were or, aren't, or, or just don't have good values to live by. So I really think this thing is real, and it's a freight train. And if you're not on it, you might get run over by it. Oh, I 100% agree. I'm glad you said employees too, because I think the conventional wisdom when we talk about this socially conscious trend, we've studied it for years and just quarter after quarter after quarter, the consumer says, I care more and more about the social consciousness and kindness or what have you in places I shop. And so we feel like that's such a, a, a consumer driven trend, but it's an employee-driven, it's a workforce-driven trend as well, because when you're competing for talent, particularly now, and I've noticed this just in the last year or two, um, but more in the last year, when people come and interview for jobs here, they ask us, what do you stand for? What volunteer opportunities do you have? What groups do you contribute? I mean, I never would have dreamt, you know, 10 years ago to ask a boss a question like that in an interview. And that's like one of the first things they bring up. So you, so, so now think about the, You've got that trend, which is I'm going to go to work for places that are purpose-driven and have values that I align with. Oh, and by the way, now I want to work from home at least you know half the time because I don't want to be tethered to an office. You're right. It is, it is a freight train and 
I think the next two to three years are going to be a fascinating social experiment to watch. How do you lead that way in your organization? Are you, are you setting the agenda? How are you engaging your employees in these agendas? What are, what are, what are, how do you make your team feel involved in the value, value creation at Logitech? Uh, you know, I, well, in the value creation, that's a big comment. Well, I don't mean value creation in the values. commercial sense. Values, right. Well, you know, it's it's interesting. Um, I don't know how to answer that except to say that it's it's been for, fairly organic, which usually means I didn't have a process. <laughs> right. And that's in this case is good because that's probably going to breed more authenticity than a process might, right? Yeah. yeah you know, I think you... There's a great book called uh, Seeing is Forgetting the Name of the Thing You See about an artist named Robert Irwin. Okay. And he's got this one, you don't even know who he is right now, but there's this one uh, little, little page or two where he talks about he was making a living. You'll like this. He was making a living by going to the racetrack back before the handicapped horses. He was cre- he created his own handicapping system. So he was an artist by most of the time, but then he was, go- he was making a living by going to the horse races and, and betting, you know? And he... Um, and he would he would get all his data. Do they run well in mud? Do they, what if there are eighteen horses at a race? All this stuff, really data driven. He'd figure out the night before who's going to bet on, and then during the race, right before the next race, he'd walk up to bet, make a bet. And he said, and then I would just feel the crowd, the sound, watch the betting windows, and half the time I'd change my bet. And and he said, I, and he described this. I'd run my hand through the hair of the moment. And I thought, that's exactly how I feel about what you just asked me. It's, I have lots of data, lots of information. We're doing lots of things. And I get the feedback from all my team. But at the end of the day, it comes back to this feeling that you have where you're connected to everything around you. It's your intuition, you know? And so I'd say that's kind of where this has come from. Yeah, you could see it last summer. The, the brands that stepped out or companies that stepped out, say, around the George Floyd um, crisis and, and that we're still living in, I guess, but um, the brands that were authentic and forceful and weren't research-based, right, in their actions, you could feel that. You could sense the authenticity of the genuineness of that. And I think that's true in all, in, in, in both in, I'm sure, in one-to-one conversations you have with your team or, or company-wide conversations, they can pick up when you're, when you're reading, you know, talking points from a from a press release and when you're actually speaking from your heart, I think consumers can feel that too. You have, um, you and I have talked about this before uh, and I know you've spoken about and written about it. I want to, I want to spend a minute on this idea of firing yourself. You, you use it as a develop personal development tactic uh, or strategy. Maybe talk a little bit about what that concept means for the people who are just meeting you for the first time or hearing that concept for the first time. And what are some of the things you've learned from it? Well, you give me far more credit than I deserve if you think that I use it as a tactic or that I've got this process that, that really works, you know. Uh, it's, it's, it was much less uh, officialized or, or technically put together than that. What happened to me was after I'd been here about five years, I think the value of the company had gone up a ton. You know, it was like worth seven or eight times more than when I started. And we were so different as a company from, in five years from what the company that I started in. And I was having a ball. I mean, it was so much fun. But I was, you know, I'm a big shareholder. I was trying to, I was trying to, I do, I'm always trying to figure out how to get back to pure objectivity, get back to zero, you know. So it was, it was around the holidays. I always rewrite my goals and evaluate myself for the prior year and that time of year. And I was, and then I started to think, you know, well, for this different from in five years from where we were, imagine how different we'll be five more years from now. And, you know, what kind of CEO do we need to take us into that, you know, just objectively. 
So I wrote down what I thought you probably need. And then I, and then I said, okay, how do I match up? So I wrote down what I thought, how I thought I'd match up, you know? And I thought, okay, if this were an interview, I would, I would probably get in the interview slate. I'd be one of the top three or four choices, but, but you know, there, but I have this one big disadvantage, which is I, I really carefully selected the strategies, the people, the many of the products I was directly involved in, you know, can I really be objective and, Objective enough to be as cold-blooded and neutral enough going into the next, you know, five years. And so I really thought about that for a while. I thought, no, I can't. I mean, I read Thinking Fast and Slow. I, you know, Daniel Kahneman taught me one thing, which is, man, I mean, you can't escape your what's inside you. You know, it's just impossible. So I decided, I think I got, I think I got to go. You know, I'll do something else. I, there, I, there's lots of. I love so many things. There's no problem. I can go do something else. I'll be so super happy. I, I don't want to leave, but I. But I also want to do the right thing, so I decided to fire myself. I, so I said, "I'm going to I'm going to sleep on this, like I do, you know, lots of big decisions now because I just do." And so I decided to sleep on it, and uh, I was going to tell my my chairman the next morning. And so I, I slept on it. I woke up the next morning, and as happens to me so often with big decisions, like 51 percent of the time, I did a 180 on it. I woke up the next morning. I thought it was so clear to me that's a cop out. The answer is. You just have to give yourself back to where there are no sacred cows. Nothing you did is sacred. Nothing you did is right. It's all behind you. You're starting over again right now. And so I did. And uh, and I, I and I didn't know if I could really do that, but I, I decided I, I thought I could. So I, I I took the offer. I signed the contract. I, I was going to have no sacred cows. But I was going to be a new. And I felt like a newcomer, you know, and. After a couple of months and I made some major changes, I, I then told my staff the same thing. I said, you know, look, I want you to get, I explained the story to them. My CFO knew it um, and my CHRO, but, but nobody else did. And I, I explained what I'd done. And then I said, now I'd like you to do the same thing this weekend. You know, I, and uh, I want you to fire yourself. I want you to wake up. If you want to come back, I want you to come back. And if you don't, that's okay. You know, it's, it's perfectly okay. And, uh, and then later, I think in the next meeting, I, I left out something important. I came back the next week, the same week, and I said, by the way, if you don't fire yourself, I will, and I won't hire you back because I really think this is important. And uh, and I think for the most part, they did it. And uh, that sounds a little nastier than I really am. You know I'm a very nice guy, but but I really did want them to act. And and then I, I did something similar this, this recent, this last holiday, which was, a little bit on the same vein, but I won't waste your time with that. It was similar enough to Paris explaining. We have a um, motto, creed, or whatever in our office that you do the things that you're gifted at doing and you don't do the things you suck at, which isn't nearly as articulate as your firing yourself concept. But spe- <laughs> especially that any, 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 any motto that ends in a preposition always makes the hair <laughs> on the back of my neck turn up. But the basic premise there is it sounds simpler than it is. The, the don't do things you suck at is the harder part of the job, right? Because it, first of all, it requires a bit of self-awareness of like, what do you suck at? And are you willing to admit that you do? And and I think I found sort of the higher up the food chain you get, the less likely somebody is to want to acknowledge weakness or, or in, in, in deficiency or deficiency, excuse me. What did you learn in firing yourself that you said, you know, I'm not as good at that as I thought I was, or, or what kind of, what kind of self-awareness did that create for you of, of you know, a place where you either needed to get better or say, you know what, I'm just going to stop doing that thing altogether because I'm never going to be as good at it as the people who are really good at it. Well, I, I learned that the new person always always has the newcomer's advantage, so they don't feel married to anything. You know, 
like uh, that, that famous uh, quote of Intel long ago, and Andy Grove and his uh, CEO partner said, you know, this memory business is going to be dead, and what's growing is the chip business. But you know, we uh, we make so much money out of the memory business. What are we going to do? And and Andy Grove said, what would somebody who knew came in here and took our jobs do? He said, well, they they focus on the chip business. And, well, we better do it, or we're going to get fired, and somebody else will be coming in. But you know, I think that level of uh, newcomer's advantage is so valuable that you just can't you can't get to it early enough or often enough. And I think you can always get it back if you really try hard enough. Maybe you'll never be as pure as a real newcomer, but you can try. And I think that's an endless quest that I really believe in. The other things that I learned about myself, not necessarily from firing myself, is that I'm not a very good coach. You know, I grew up playing sports, as you said at the beginning of the podcast. I I really thought I and I'm a, I was a leader. You know, everybody looked up to me, and I. So I was, I was the president of my student body. I was the team captain of the basketball team. I, you know, I've been a leader in everything I've ever done. And so, of course, I must be a good coach and I must be a good manager. And then I, I sort of realized in the last couple of years, I'm actually not a very good coach and I'm not a very good manager. And I was trying to think, what am I good at? And I, and I, I honestly had trouble coming up with anything that I'm particularly good at. I think one of my towering strengths is staying out of good people's way. And um, and I'm really good at that. Now I I still get into stuff that I'm really interested in where my intuition tells me I should, but but I it's usually to move things in a new direction because it's hard. You know, inertia is so powerful in any organization that somebody's got to knock things off the track. You know, and I'm really good at knocking things off the track and maybe putting them on a new track. I'm I'm less good at coaching and managing other people on how to do that in general. You're completely preaching to the choir, man. I say that all the time that there's leadership, coaching, and management are three very different skills, and you seldom see all three of them in the same person. I'm, I'm, I'm with you to a T. Coaching and management are, are things that I've struggled with. And again, kind of learned the hard way that I'm not particularly probably, probably shouldn't be doing it. Shouldn't be offering myself up as a coach or manager because I'm never going to be as good at it as people who are good at those two things. And, I, and I, by the way, I don't accept that in myself. I think that's inexcusable in a way as a CEO in my job. Now, I can't speak for your job, but in my particular situation, that's not acceptable. So I have to improve myself. I, I don't subscribe to the belief. I did that you should just focus on the things you're good at as you read it. So I think that's a very effective way for a company to work. As an individual, it's a great way to stop growing. I think, you know, you should always seek out surprise. You know, what, what is learning? It's just a reaction to surprise. I think you should always seek out surprises, seek out novelties, seek out things you're not good at, see, what, see why you're not good at them. You know, just constantly be in this, this fight to learn and knowing that you're probably screwing your company up by wasting your time on things you shouldn't. <laughs> I'm kidding. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a line there, right? I mean, you, you, yeah. you, you, and this is what we tell our team is just because you suck at something today doesn't mean you would, you're going to suck at it tomorrow or a week or a month from now. If it's something you're, genuinely interested in learning we're going to support you and foster that and you and we're going to get you know and we're right that is the reason why people suck at stuff and continue to suck at stuff so they don't care about getting better at it it's not they don't have conviction around if you have conviction around there's nothing you can't do now john in your life nothing you can not improve couldn't become pretty good at if you cared enough that you you thought was important enough the issue is most people don't think it's important enough, and it's probably not important enough so but if you really want to keep your brain alive and lively you know Continue to expand the things you think about, how you think, you know, the areas you're, 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 you haven't really delved into enough. That's the way to do it as far as I can go. Well, I mean, that, that motto we have here, 97% of it is self-awareness and communication. That's it. 
That's all it's about. Is it just acknowledge? Let's let's be aware of the things we can get better at. Let's communicate with each other about those things honestly, and then let's work together to create opportunity to get better at them as we can. I think that all works. You know, you said something that struck me as well. You know, when you walk into a meeting, because of your title, right? It's hard to have an opinion about things, right? Because your your opinion carries more weight in and probably nine most of the rooms that you're in on a given day. Right. So, so that makes that self-awareness even more important because you have to be able to separate from the time when you say, Hey, I'm part of a kind of a democratic dialogue here where my vote doesn't outweigh anybody else's, but it's hard to convince the people in the room not that, Oh my gosh, Bracken said this. So now we've got to go start a whole company initiative about it. How do you manage your, how do you manage your way through that? I have an enormous advantage. I have a lack of self-confidence in most things that I don't understand that well. So I do not come in saying we should do this and we should do that because I don't have enough confidence to say it. I, I really don't know what the answer is most of the time. Every room I walk into, I know that there are probably almost everybody in that room knows more about the topic than I do. I come in as an idiot, you know? Yeah, well, you know, the title of this podcast is The Dumbest Guy in the Room. So at least for this hour, you're not allowed to be the dumbest guy in the room. That's that's me. So I'm, I'm, tra- I'm trademarking it, man. You can't have it. You can't have it. I like to wrap these up. Uh, with a, with a, as you know, um, a random, some random and fun poll questions to. Wonderful. I mean, I, I, in my favorite, you are, you are, I'll just say this. I, I had to find my spot to say this. You're the favorite thing that I read every week. That's very You're nice of you to say that. And hopefully everyone listening reads it. And if they don't, we can yeah. ha- certainly solve that. Um, but yeah, those, those questions at the end are always sort of fun to get. And I always get notes from people every week about them. And, and again, titans of industry, right? Who could, you know, be ranting with me about something, some serious business issue, and they want to rant about like, you know, what kind of shoes they wear. So, um, all right. Number one, would you say you're friends with any of your next door neighbors? Yes. Yeah. yeah, we just moved and we, we weren't in our old house, but this new place we moved, everybody's sort of coming and bringing gifts and things. So we're feeling, and that's kind of a new muscle for us to stretch because we weren't in our old house. They just, it wasn't set up like that. So now we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now we're like, Oh, wait a minute. Like we're getting asked to go do things now. We never were before. Do you have spring allergies? No, you're lucky. That is the, uh, that's, um, maybe a Northern California thing. Maybe you're lucky there. We have my entire house gets them about 40, 41% of Americans get spring allergies. So this is like, we're starting into like the next 60 days of hell over it. Do you answer phone calls from numbers you don't recognize? No. No. Like who does? Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, and by the way, I, I get zoom calls constantly now that I just delete, delete. I mean, yeah. 70% of, well, so 30% of Americans say they answer phone calls from numbers they don't recognize. Like I don't, I just don't. It's never anyone I want to talk to ever. So there's maybe, just zero, there's zero reason. Maybe it's the people calling all of us. Oh, that thirty percent. Ah, that you know what? As many of them as I get, that seems about right. Thirty percent. That's right about the right magnitude. <laughs> yeah, they're all calling me. Do you let people, yourself included, eat food in your car? Yes. Yeah, I don't know how you could possibly ever have children and answer no to that question. It's just impractical. Or commuting to work, but twenty yeah. percent of Americans say they never let anyone ever eat food in their car. I just can't figure out how you get through life that way. It doesn't make and any sense. That's the only restaurant you go to sometimes. No, right, especially now. Right. Okay. Hypothetically, so this is if you were to do it all over again, would you want a huge wedding, a small wedding, or would you rather just elope? Small wedding. 
Where are you, John? Where are you on this one? Are you going to save that for one of your? Uh, no, no. You know what? Like we had a semi-small wedding, and now like, and it was awesome, and I loved it. We got married in Florida. It was a great time. But I, I, I just like more, this. Maybe it's because you're asking me in the middle of the pandemic, and I want to be around like a massive group of people again. <laughs> like right now, it's like the bigger the wedding, I can imagine the, the better because I just want to see everybody all at once. Yeah. But yeah. Actually, most people, 40% say they'd a small wedding. 30% say they'd rather elope. Like they would go back and not doing the whole wedding, do the wedding thing at all. I wonder why. I wonder what runs through your mind if you just said, just rather elope. Like, I, I really don't want to see anybody but you. I guess it's either really romantic or, or so. Well, or maybe, maybe. So I realize the way we asked this question is like, if you could go back and do it over again, maybe they just had such a negative experience with their their wedding, you know, some, some, some I'm catastrophe still, or something. I don't know. Yeah. I'm still paying it off or something. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Wedding day. Yeah. So well, Bracken, look, um, I'm so excited to have you come on. Um, you know, we're, 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 we, we're kindred spirits in a lot of ways. And I've always looked up to you as a leader and we've had some great conversations about leadership over the years. I think, you know, you, you're, you're very self-effacing about these things, but even you're firing yourself concept. You know, you, 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 you felt like I was giving you too much credit for that. Like it was some grand plan. And I'm not saying that it was, but a lot of thought goes into something like that, particularly then when you go and you, you, you replicate it with your team. That's what leadership looks like, right? It's, 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 it's the self-awareness that you have. Uh, it's the constant learning that you have. And then. And then it's demonstrating that for other people, which again is different from coaching, I think, right? You're saying, you're saying, here's an example of something that I did that I think you might want to consider. And that's, that's great leadership. Um, enjoyed our French getting to know each other over the last few years. Can't wait to see you again in person over a bottle of wine sometime, maybe in the next 12 months. Um, if not, maybe in the next CES. Um, yeah, but, but listen, congrats on, I know it's, it's hard to, you don't want to do a victory lap when so much hardship came over this past year and, you know, so many people suffered and struggled through it and companies suffered and struggled through it. But, but, you know, this has been some validation of the big trends that you saw seven, nine years ago that have played themselves out. And I agree with you 100%. They are not trends that are going to be going anywhere. So I do think some congratulations in order for how you've managed your the company through the pandemic. And so, uh, here's, here's to hoping that, um, you've got many more quarters like that in front of you. And, uh, thanks again for coming on. All right. See you. Thank thanks. You